Take your copy of the Bible, turn to Joel chapter 2. It's page 761 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. Probably doesn't, but it's always worth a try. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 2, this is the word of the Lord. I would remind you, uh, it was written a long time ago. I mean, it was, it was a long time ago. But the beauty of divinely inspired words is that when God wrote them, he had you in mind, as well as all of his people. Hear and listen for what God would say to his people now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brider chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let's pray. Triune God, we ask that you would speak through your word, letters written long ago, but used by a spirit who is alive today. May he bless us that we might hear from heaven. Lord, we don't need to simply hear earthly human words. We have plenty of those. Our world is filled with them. Thanks to the internet, there is no shortage of them. But we need truth from heaven. Give us your help, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. This season of life in America is intriguing. It's an interesting time to be an American. For some of you that follow kind of the sports world, I love it. This week it was announced that the XFL is coming back, which is just, to me, comedy. It's comedy gold. For those of you that remember, the XFL was tried once, but it was too extreme. It was too rude. It was too crass, too silly for America. We didn't know what to do with football players who have on the back of their jersey, they got to pick their own names, and the most famous one was a guy who was named... He hate me, right? Yes, you remember that. He hate me. And uh, it was announced as coming back because people think, you know what? In our American sensibilities today, something that was too silly and crass and wild and extreme from my childhood magically seems to fit right now, doesn't it? 
They expect to make a lot of money off of it. It's an interesting time as we watch court proceedings now. We get to see Rachel Den Hollander talk to her uh, abuser. If you haven't watched that, go to the Gospel Coalition. Her confrontation of her abuser uh, is magnificent. She's a, a godly uh, young lady. and uh, her, her presentation of the Gospel is staggering as she talks to the man who hurt her so terribly. We watch as the, the media cycle and the news cycle and the entertainment cycle, all of these things kind of get exposed now. And we're watching a new thing begin to happen. The art of the public apology. Or, I, I mean, I guess probably more accurate, accurately said, the art of the public non-apology. Preparing for this, I hunted around the internet because it's fun to look at different articles and looking at like Forbes and stuff on uh, the great features of a public apology. It cracks me up. You have all of these articles designed to help you give a public apology, which is in essence, according to them, an effort to simply save face and keep money in your brand. Interestingly, it has very little to do with facts even less to do with victims, has everything to do with marketing. How can I spin the situation to have the best damage control? The Me Too movement has been fantastic to watch this as our celebrities are suddenly having to address sins of their childhood or adulthood or the last 50 years. And watching the excuses that are given are just staggering. I mean, some of the ones that, that people... Just fantastic. Uh, I mean, what... It's like a lesson in military brilliance of diversionary tactics. Hey, we need to talk about this over here. Have you seen the bright flashing light over there? Let's go look at that. Here, let me, let me, let me try to draw your attention over here. And, and never really address the issue. We live in a culture that is faking apologies constantly. And the interesting thing is, is we're already beginning to see as a culture, the national tension of how unsatisfying it is. You know, Larry Nasser brought his Bible to the courtroom most times. It's interesting. We find that we hear that we're like, man, that's just, it's so unsatisfying that the man who's been convicted of spectacular set of crimes had his Bible with him just feels so weird doesn't it and we listen to our celebrities address their mistakes from years gone by the evils they have committed and again we walk away and it's so unsatisfying Joel chapter 2 is going to address biblical repentance It's going to address satisfying repentance. It's going to address what a real apology looks like. It's the turning point of the book. In fact, you could argue it's the center point of the book, not just in uh, space, but also in content. The first half of the book is bad. The last part of the book is really good. And there's one primary thing that changes between the two. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 
You remember how the book starts, there's been an invasion of locusts and it's impacted the nation in a staggering fashion. These hateful little creatures have come in, the the grasshoppers and the conditions have been just right and they've multiplied and they've multiplied and they've multiplied and when you have a locust infestation like this, it can be millions of these little creatures of hate in every square mile. It's terrible and they destroy everything. They eat everything that's green or close to green or really maybe even brown, certainly yellow, and everything's gone and it's left dried out, barren mess. And in a culture that relies on agriculture, well, that's a huge problem because not only have you lost the land this cycle, but you've lost the land next cycle and probably most likely the harvest cycle after that. I mean, massive amount of damage. I mean, Fort Mill illustration, think about how bad it is when we get a really late frost, what it does to the peach crop. And that's one frost. And the prices skyrocket and the quality is not as good. And that's just one little bit of frost. These are things that eat it to the ground. And then Joel takes this national disaster and says, look, we're contemplating the the tremendous problem that the locusts are. But you know what? That's a big deal. We're not going to minimize how big a deal that is. We're not going to minimize how problematic this is. We're not going to minimize how terrible it is for the land. But, oh yeah, by the way, that's nothing compared to what's coming. I mean, this is a national disaster, unlike anything seen in generations before or after. And, oh yeah, by the way, it's nothing compared to what's coming. What's coming? Well, he picks up the locust metaphor and he mixes it with an army metaphor and he says, what's coming is something big. You see, the locusts are a foreshadowing. They're a picture. They're a metaphor. They're an image. They, they teach us about something much bigger. And the thing they teach us about is the judgment of God. And on the day of the Lord, the day where time and space end the way that we know them, there is judgment coming. And it's far worse than the national disaster that they have experienced. It's far worse than the destruction. It's terrifying in all forms and fashions. And in order to understand verse 12 and following, you really have to have the backdrop of the unaltering wrath of God consuming everything in its path. Again, remember, this is a God who is so powerful that he spoke creation into existence. I can't even draw a star correctly. And he spoke them into existence. I mean, you realize that our sun has uh, aerosolized gaseous metals. It's so hot. Well, it's pretty amazing that he spoke that into existence. I mean, not molten aluminum, it's gaseous aluminum. That's pretty cool. It was amazing. And then all of that power that he used to speak creation into existence is turned into unmaking that creation. Into destroying it, into judging it, and pouring out his wrath. And with the backdrop of that in the book, we have Joel calling the people of God to repentance. And here in these brief verses, in our brief time, he gives them a guide for what repentance looks like. 
Look at the features. We're just going to consider a bunch of features kind of rapidly, very quickly. First, verse 12a. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me. I love that, how it starts. First feature that we notice is that it's never too late to repent as long as you're still alive. I mean, there is a point where it is too late to repent. You only get one shot at this life, and that's your chance to repent. So as long as you're still alive, it's never too late. It's never too late to repent. And why? Because God saves even the worst of sinners, and He can redeem even the worst of situations. I told you already once to go listen to Rachel Den Hollander address Larry Nasser. She made this point beautifully. You're a terrible excuse for a human being. And I hope that I can call you my brother because Jesus can redeem even you. It's never too late. It's never too bad. It's never too hopeless. It's never too dark. And think about how he said this to Israel. Look, the nation's been devastated by the locusts. And oh yeah, that's not bad enough. God himself is coming to destroy creation. But even then, still repent now. It's not too late. You're not too bad to repent. Repent while you're still alive. And Joel then turns to the nature of this repentance. And you have to understand a little bit about how Israel repented. Their idea of mourning was a public and corporate thing. We here in America, and particularly in the South, our our mourning is done privately. We don't like to cry in public. Everything's done behind closed doors. Well, at least in Anglo culture. It's done behind closed doors. It's done in our homes with our garages shut and our shades pulled. In Israel, that was not the case. It was done publicly. It was done visibly. And it was done with great vigor. To the point where you actually had paid public mourners so that if you had an event that you needed to mourn over you could call the mourners to come over and mourn with you and they would weep and they would wail and they would wear the appropriate clothing that looked rough and was extremely itchy and was miserable so that the collective group could have the big thing It was ritualistic. Put differently, it was marketed. It was America. What they did is instead of having real and genuine repentance filled with their heart, they took a physical set of actions to try to mask what was actually happening. If I follow A, B, C, D, and E, maybe it looks like repentance. Maybe it looks like mourning. Maybe it looks like sadness. And hear what God says. Repentance is sincere. Return to me with all your heart, verse 12, the latter half, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So all these physical actions. Oh yeah, by the way, what do we want about them? Are we going to have professional mourners come? No, no, no. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Rather than, again, as Israel was prone to do, tearing their clothes as a sign of how upset they were. He says, look, don't tear your clothes. You hypocrites that are just being sad on the outside but happy on the inside. 
Tear your heart instead. Maybe a more accurate illustration of this in the average American home might be, and I'm sure none of us will ever be able to relate to this, so I don't know why I'm using the illustration, but maybe a situation between husband and wife where the husband has maybe said something or done something that he did not think was that big of a deal, but his wife does. And she's rather angry about it. She's livid. So what does the husband do? Well, he's confronted with dealing with angry wife or his mistake. And so he gives a casual apology to shut her up. He doesn't mean it. It's not real. It's not serious. It's like, if I just say I'm sorry, she'll stop talking. If I say I'm sorry, she'll stop crying. If I say I'm sorry, she'll stop yelling. And then we can just move on and forget about it without ever actually really dealing with it. And God's saying, look, that's hypocrisy. That's not real repentance. Real repentance is, at its core, dealing with the heart. Now, it's going to have external actions and external consequences, but it's at its core. It's an internal thing. Look, rend your heart. Tear it in half. (coughs) Let your heart be as grieved as the victim is grieved. Be sincere. 14, I think. is a key element and one that is entirely foreign from the way that Americans tend to think about repentance. I was raised in a home, and I think rightly so, where uh, as long as I repented for my parents, I said I was sorry. If I confessed it initially, I got in far less trouble. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's good parenting. There is a danger connected to that, though, in that we begin to see repentance as a mechanism for getting out of trouble. Where we say, look, I'm in trouble, I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm, I'm in problem, I, I've been caught at doing something, I therefore must say I'm sorry in hopes of getting out of the consequences. And it's interesting, all of the best and clearest and brightest of biblical repentance has nothing to do with getting out of consequences. Verse 14, who knows whether God will forgive Who knows whether God will relent? Who knows whether God will stop the consequences, the coming judgment, the coming destruction? Maybe he'll give a blessing, but you know what? It doesn't matter because it's not about getting out of trouble. If you'd go to Jonah, he preaches the worst sermon in human history to the Ninevites. I mean, that's not even half-hearted. It's like one-twentieth-hearted. It's the worst sermon ever. And the Lord is so gracious that he takes the worst sermon ever and converts an entire town of it. But you remember what their repentance is from Jonah's awful sermon. Their repentance is, look, we need to repent. Maybe God spares us. Maybe he doesn't. That's fine either way. We've got to repent. You see, repentance is ultimately, it's for God's sake and not for punishment's sake. You remember this maybe if you grew up as a, in the church or grew up as a, a young child that loved the Lord. Sometimes you maybe forgot about God until you got in trouble with your parents. And then suddenly your prayer life was reinvigorated. <laughs> Sometimes maybe we do the same thing with our repentance as adults, don't we? 
Where it's not until we've done something dumb that we remember we need to be creatures of repentance. And oh yeah, we're serious about it, but really we're just trying to get out of our problems. We're trying to use it as a get out of jail free card as an adult to say, you know what? I don't like the situation I'm in. Maybe if I repent, God will take care of me. How about I repent for God's sake? I sinned against my Savior. I sinned against my Maker. I sinned against my Redeemer. You know what? I need to repent regardless of if He chooses to spare me of consequences inside time and space. 15 and 16, it changes again how the people of God think about repentance corporately because what does Joel immediately call them to? Corporate repentance. Now, certainly there is a place for private repentance, for personal individual repentance, but it's interesting, so much of the scriptures, when they speak about the people of God, it's corporate. Remember, we have, as America, because man, individualism, yeah, you know, throw the tea into the harbor, all about me, don't tread on me, I'm the, you know, solo bootstrapper, as has been joked about so many times in the past. Uh, I'm an individual who runs my life. We have valued individuality to an excess. And viewed individual repentance to excess. And have neglected, there's a corporate element. Blow the trumpet in Zion. The entire entire city. Let's consecrate a fast for everybody. Let's have a solemn assembly. Let's gather all the people together. Let's have the congregation. Let's have the elders. Let's have everyone get together. And let's do this corporately. Repent for sin. Bonhoeffer tried to capture this idea. I don't really like Bonhoeffer in a lot of areas, but uh, he said, uh, uh, confession is not confession unless it's to another person. What his idea behind it was is when we confess privately, we're so quick to justify. We have amazing ability to add provisions. I did this except for that because they were this way and they were a wretch and I was responding and blah. And we had all of these, you know, asterisks and justifications to take the thing that we did and to minimize it. Instead, we follow uh, our order of service. As you can tell, we, we confess corporately a lot. We're called to do that, well, certainly privately as well, but corporately. And then it adds in in the last part of this, the, the intensity with which we should view this. How serious is repentance? Gather the children. So don't wait till you're old. Gather the children. Children, come in. You need to learn to repent. Oh, yeah, even nursing infants, which according to the law of Israel, those that were of you know, nursing the youngest, they were given basically passes. They didn't have to be in certain things and certain activities, and they were spared. And he's saying, look, you're not spared from this. Even bridegroom leave his chamber, the bride her chamber, that's very kind of delicate way of saying look this is their wedding night they're on their honeymoon and you know what all the things that they're that's secondary repentance is so important that it even trumps honeymoons it it even surpasses uh you know consummation of marriage in significance it's more important that drop whatever you're doing and repent And then he closes it out with addressing again, why do we repent? Who is repentance for? Ultimately, it is for God. 
The whole situation builds where the people of God are gathered and you have young and you have old, you have freshly married, which again would have been in Israel's time. They were given a year off. When you got married, you had military exemption for a year. I mean, they did a really good job of making sure marriages were protected in that regard. Everybody gathered together in verse 17, right here before, uh, between the vestibule and the altar, right there in the middle of worship, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep. Let them pray to the Lord. They're going to say, spare your people, O Lord. Why? What's the reasoning for sparing? What's the reasoning for repentance? Make not your heritage, God, a reproach. Make not your people a byword among the nations. Uh, far be it that they should ever say, where is their God? What's the reasoning for repentance? It's, it's God. It's for the glory of God. Now, interestingly, does Joel even talk about their sin? No, it doesn't. It doesn't tell us anything that Israel is doing wrong. Some theologians think this book is actually, was actually designed to be used in worship as a part of the church liturgy because there's no specific sin given. It's not that they're having marriage between believers and unbelievers. It's not that they're uh, taking advantage of the poor. It's not that the rich are exploiting the poor to the sacrifice of justice. As many of the other books, this one is like, look, if you have sin, repent! Very generic in the sin, very specific in the repentance. Because repentance is ultimately about the glory of God. Now, very quickly, just thinking about that and thinking about how we talk about repentance, how we do repentance, I mean, realistically, just don't say anything out loud, but. Thinking about your own life this week. Pause a moment. Just think about your personal prayer time. How much time did you spend confessing sins to the Lord this week at all? I mean, many of you were taught the four types of prayer when you were a kid, right? Adore the Lord first, then confess Him, then thank Him, then ask Him for things. We do pretty good at the thanking one. We do really good at the asking part. A lot of times we don't really do the middle one, do we? That confession thing, we we just forget How about when you sin against your neighbor or your family or your children or your four-year-old? How about that one? What type of confession did you, did you model for them? What type of repentance did you display? Did you, did you tear your heart? Were you grieved over it? Were we repenting as the scriptures teach us or were we repenting as our culture teaches us? Because, again, Joel connects it in verse 17. Our repentance in some way is a connection to the glory of God. It is for his name's sake. And why? What's the big deal? Why is this so important? Why does it even matter? Well, I skipped over my favorite verse in the whole passage. 13b. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Why should I repent? Why does it matter that I confess my sins? Why does it matter at all? Because, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. 
Why do you confess your sins? Because he's faithful and just. He forgives our sins and he cleanses from all unrighteousness. Read that one earlier. Why do you confess your sins? Because it glorifies God and he forgives. You see, I think one of the things that we've done unhelpfully is we've emphasized that Christians are to be holy people, and that's a good emphasis. We should. And we've emphasized that Christians are already holy people, and that's true, and we should. But we've maybe not done a good enough job of emphasizing that even if we are already holy people and even if we are already transformed people, we are to be people of constant repentance. The confession says, one of the best lines in the entire confession, that we are to repent of our particular sins particularly. You can remember that one easily. That you're supposed to go through, what, what did you do? How have you sinned against the Lord? And repent of those specific things. Why? So that you can be cleansed and be transformed. Because this is part of the design of what God has built into salvation. Part of the mechanism for us to be transformed because He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. And this is where those promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus. How do we know that He's slow to anger? How do we know that He's abounding in steadfast love? How do we know that He relents over disaster? Because we can look at Christ and see all of those things already fulfilled. Was He slow to anger? Well, yes. They murdered Jesus and He did not incinerate them all on the spot. That's pretty slow to anger. Shockingly so. Abounding in steadfast love. Oh yes, while he's on the cross, he's actively forgiving them. That's pretty amazing. Forgive them, they know not what they do. That's astounding love. And relenting over disaster. Giving time after the resurrection, before that judgment day comes, so that we might be gathered together, his people. What do we do this? A couple of points very quickly. One is we as God's people need to cultivate a habit of repentance. It needs to be part of the DNA, part of the vocabulary of how we talk about life, how we talk about the church, how we talk about ourselves, that we are a people of repentance. Many of you know the story of Rosario Butterfield. Rosario Butterfield was a... um, committed professor in Syracuse on, in queer studies. That was her field uh, of expertise that she was uh, so dynamic in and was very adamant in that lifestyle and very committed. And brought into a pastor's house, started interacting with a pastor and his family, and through that the Lord converted her. But it's interesting what she connects as the thing that captured her heart first was when they prayed at the table, he confessed his sins to the family and to the Lord sincerely. It was really interesting. Out of all the things, it wasn't that she heard the good news of the gospel. It wasn't that she heard, my sins could be forgiven. It wasn't that she heard that she was a terrible person and needed Jesus. She watched the pastor model his confession. And she didn't know what to do with that. Because here's a good man who's confessing sin and asking forgiveness. And she didn't have a category for that in her head. 
building a habit of repentance. I would encourage you personally to have seasons of repentance where you stop and just reflect on life. Spend a weekend, spend a couple of days where that's the kind of, you know, theme running through your head to consider it. But then next, and this is one that I would challenge us all to think about, is not to be embarrassed by repentance. It has slowly crept into the church where I think many of us unintentionally feel that confession of sin feels a little bit dirty because it means I have to acknowledge that I'm not a good person. And all of y'all are such good people, it's hard for me to admit that. And the reality of the matter is, you know those thoughts that run through your head that are so awful that you want no one else to know? That's a part of the human condition called sin. And we all have it, and therefore we all need to confess. And we confess for God's glory. We confess finding uh, cleansing in Christ and only trusting in him. May it be that we, his people here, learn to be a people of confession together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for passages like this that I don't think we tend to do very well. We do a lot of things well. I don't think this is one of those. So we confess our confession. We repent of our repentance. For I think we're poor at that. And we ask for your name's sake that you would transform us. That we might be people that know what it means to confess our sins. Know what it means to rend our hearts over our evil. And know what it means to be forgiven in Christ Jesus. Forgive us for his name's sake. Amen. Stand and sing 647. Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It suits his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I built my shield and hiding place. Her failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. 
Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 